Hello, and welcome to another episode of Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. In last week's episode, we heard from Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs in his lecture on happiness from the Jewish perspective. He outlined three types of happiness in Judaism, the happiness of struggle, the happiness of peace, and the happiness of covenant. In today's episode, Jonathan Sachs delves deeper into the meaning and measure of happiness in Judaism, and how the ancient wisdom of the Jewish tradition remains relevant for issues of the modern world. For a people that suffered more than most, you will be surprised to know that in Hebrew there is no word for tragedy. Why? Because Judaism and doubtless Christianity likewise are the principled defeat, refutation of tragedy in the name of hope. All this and more on today's episode of Interactions. I'm Janet Metzger, and this is Happiness in the Jewish Perspective by Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. What does social happiness entail? First of all, can I just point out one feature of the Bible, which I think is tremendously important, which is that the book of Genesis comes before the book of Exodus. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> what do I mean? Uh, and, and Christians should see this much more readily than Jews, because in the Christian Bible, the book of Ruth appears before the first book of Samuel, right? And it's very interesting. In the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth appears nowhere near the book of Samuel. Uh, but the Christian Bible gets it in the chronological order. What is Exodus about? The birth of Israel as a nation. What is the first book of Samuel about? The birth of Israel as a kingdom. They are both political moments. But what is Genesis about? Human relationships. It's about husbands and wives, parents and children, siblings and their rivalry, about Abraham and Sarah and, 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 and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel and Leah. That's what it's about, personal relationships. The Bible tells us the story of the personal relationship before it begins to talk about the political phenomenon, phenomena of the book of Exodus. Ditto with 1 Samuel, which talks about the birth of Israel's monarchy, first Saul, then David. It tells us the story of Ruth. Of the kind, what's the phrase, that lovely phrase, the kindness of strangers, of Ruth's attachment to Naomi and Boaz's kindness to both of them. And right at the end of the book of Ruth comes the punchline that Ruth is, in fact, the great grandmother of King David, Israel's greatest kings. The Torah is telling us something extremely important the primacy of the personal over the political. Do not expect to create a happy society simply by political institutions, which of necessity use force, coercive power, that's what politics is about, the primacy of the personal over the political. Number two, uh, a fundamental Jewish distinction, as you know, it follows from this is that happiness is to be found down here in the here and now, in this world, in this life, in the physical universe that God created in seven times called good. It is 
here in this embodied existence, that wonderful mix, as the Bible calls it, of dust of the earth and breath of God. In other words, Judaism rejects a whole tradition in religion, Gnosticism, Manichaeism, even Platonism, that sharp separation of body and soul, the physical, the spiritual, the time and the eternity, the particular and the universal. Happiness is down here in the particularity of our embodied existence. And that's, that's uh, and, and, uh, and uh, it was the late Sidney Morgenbesser, if I'm not mistaken, professor of philosophy at Columbia, who once proved how useless Platonism can be in the real world. You know Plato's theory of forms that the reality is not all these particulars down here, it's the form of things up there. He took his philosophy students to a restaurant in the Lower East Side, called over the waiter and said, waiter, I'd like to order soup. So the waiter said, yeah, pea soup, chicken soup, we have a wonderful borscht. None of those, says Morgan Beza, I just want soup. If you want to drink soup, you've got to drink it in its particularity. You cannot drink the platonic form of soup. So, okay, so Judaism is down here in the particularity. That's point two. Number three, there is in Judaism, and this, again, very distinctive, a rejection in the Jewish mainstream, not on the borders, but in the, in, of the voluntary embrace of suffering or poverty. With the exclusion of the Qumran sect, there are no monasteries, no convents in Judaism. There is no virtue of celibacy in Judaism. There are no holy mendicants who give away their wealth and live as paupers. And there are some remarkable statements in Judaism. We have one classic example of a person who does give up something. The Nazarite who forswears wine and all the products of grapes and doesn't have a haircut either. And the, and the Bible says when he comes to the end of his period of Nazariteship, he brings a sin offering. Why does he bring a sin offering? Now, the plain reading of this is obvious. He's bringing a sin offering because he's going from a high state of holiness back into ordinary life. But the rabbis read it exactly the other way around. Why is he bringing a sin offering for the sin of becoming a Nazarite in the first place? He gave up wine. God created wine. He gives it his personal chechsha sometimes. God created wine for us to enjoy, and this man turns his back on one of God's blessings. So that rejection of rejection is very central to Judaism. Then, and, uh, and Maimonides says something so profound here. Maimonides, in the Guide of the Perplexed, talks about the perfection of the body and perfection of the soul. The perfection of the body is, you know, creating a society where you can live, earn a living, live in safety. The perfection of the soul is something we all do in the innermost recesses of our own consciousness. And Maimonides, who is a great perfection of the soul guy, says, nonetheless, perfection of the body takes priority because you don't believe that if you're sick or you're hungry or you're homeless, you can think noble thoughts about God. Poverty humiliates. 
And that is a very Jewish approach, very different from other religions. In order to be able to have the higher spiritual achievements, your basic human needs need to be satisfied. And that's why Judaism from the very earliest days and always throughout all the diaspora had its own voluntary welfare state, which made sure that no one lived at the extremes of poverty. Then, of course, we uh, have uh, uh, David's point, which is very often life is boring. You know, and, and it is a matter of taking the kids to school, or, or it would be if I ever took the kids to school. I learned, <laughs> I especially learned not to be able to drive in order to, anyway. And, <laughs> and here I would say, David, one of the most glorious things of Judaism is the way I call it the poetry of the everyday. You know, when, you, when, you, when food comes with its aura of sanctity, the whole laws of kashrut, when, 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 when on Shabbat, you know, you take a simple glass of wine and, and two loaves of bread and you welcome the divine presence, you know, to share it with you. When you sing a hymn of praise to the woman of the family, when you bless your children, Judaism etches the quotidian with the charisma of sanctity. And that is what we call halakha. It's there in the Bible. It's that way in which we made the home the locus of so many of our important ceremonies and rituals, not the synagogue. And that, I think, the poetry of the everyday is what makes the boring, nonetheless, happy-making. And that, that's very important. And then I mentioned the Sabbath. This, too, is important for societal happiness. Read the classical writers on Judaism. The Greek and Roman writers who wrote about Judaism were scathing about one institution above all, the Sabbath. They couldn't work out the Sabbath. What is this Sabbath? Jews are lazy. That's what they said. That's it. They couldn't believe. Greeks, everyone knows what is a holy day. Everyone knows that. But a holy day whose holiness consists in the fact that you don't work, that they didn't understand. The Talmud says, and I, have no, I never checked this, somebody here will know, the Talmud says that when the scholars, you know, in the letter of Aristeas gathered together those 72 or 70 scholars to translate the Bible into Greek, uh, the Septuagint, they deliberately changed certain sentences that they thought would be unintelligible in Greek. And according to the Gemara and the Megillah, if I'm not mistaken, one of those was the sentence, on the seventh day, God completed the work which he had done. And instead they wrote on the sixth day. Because they didn't think a Greek could understand that Sabbath is itself a creation. Now, it is interesting that Greece and Rome declined and fell with remarkable rapidity. And Jews and Judaism are still here. And the, re yeah, and the reason is that just like individuals, civilizations can suffer from burnout. And the Sabbath is the antidote to that. And that is why the Sabbath is societal happiness at its very best. Go to Jerusalem on a Sabbath morning, breathe the quiet. Understand that on the Sabbath, where there's no working, no shopping, no driving, we're all enjoying God's world on equal terms. 
Shabbat is civic time the way a wonderful park is civic space. It's beautiful and we all enjoy it on equal terms. That is part of societal happiness. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, Interactions listeners. This is Justin Latterow at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion. If you like this episode and want to learn more about the interactions of law and religion around the world, check out the link to our book brochure in the podcast description. There you'll find over 40 new titles like God and the Illegal Alien by Robert Heimberger and Michael Perry's new book on human rights, democracy, and constitutionalism. Each title includes a short description and a link to buy the book online. Thanks for listening to Interactions. Then gratitude, you will know from the famous so-called nuns study, uh, which began in the University of Minnesota, I don't know where it began, where, where it followed up. But this was looking at a number of nuns who at the age of 20 or so had written on their entrance as novitiates their own autobiography in their own words. And 60 years later, they found that those who expressed at the age of 20 the most uh, gra- the greatest gratitude, thankfulness for life, were the ones who lived longer or longest. And that is one of the great things about religion in general. It teaches you gratitude. I think in one longitudinal study they discovered that uh, people who go regularly to hours of worship live seven years longer than those who don't. Or as I said to Elaine, maybe it just seems seven years longer. <laughs> When a Jew gets up, he or she says a whole litany of blessings. Thank you, God, for giving me back life. Thank you, God, for the cock crow who woke me up in the morning and I threw something at it. Thank you, God, for when I put my foot down, you create some ground for it to stand on. All the rest of it, everything you can thank God for, we thank God for every day. And that... uh, Every item of food, every item of drink, we thank God. We do, uh, uh, it was Heidegger, who's not my favorite person, who said, thinking is thanking. And that is true in Judaism. So there is the gratitude. And then, um, and all of these things, and then all of those things are embodied in Jewish law, and the result of which is to create what Aaron Lichtenstein calls societal beatitude. Um, I would just add... Uh, two other elements. One that has become highly significant today with the, um, with, the, uh, 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 with the spread of the angry atheists. You have some in America. We have most of them in Britain. Or we, we exported some to you. We sent you Christopher Hitchens. We kept Richard Dawkins in case we felt lonely. And, uh, you know, the angry atheists, what I call the intellectual equivalent of road rage, Anyway, 
And the essence of the angry atheists, uh, here we are in a universe that is meaningless. We, 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 we are an irrelevant speck on a minor third-rate planet. And, and in case we thought there was anything special about us, uh, Stephen Hawking and Ed Al think there are a billion infinity of other parallel universes. We are totally insignificant. We are, we are born, we live, we die, and it is as if we had never been. We are dust on the surface of infinity. At the end of the day, to con contemplate the meaninglessness of the universe condemns you to an Epicurean morality. And I don't recommend an Epicurean morality because its lifespan was one century. I mean, Epicurus, well, it was revived by Lucretius, but one way or another, a society that has gone Epicurean as a society on the brink of decline. In Judaism, we believe there is meaning. We matter in the scheme of things. That is what Viktor Frankl discovered in Auschwitz, quoting Nietzsche, those who have a why can survive any how. Those who feel a sense of divine presence, a task, a call, a vocation, a mission, can sustain the will to live even at the gates of hell on earth. And that sense of belonging happens with special power in the Abrahamic monotheisms. It begins with God's call to Abraham, and it is there in Maimonides who codifies the view of the rabbis that each of us should consider at every moment that the fate of the world will be dependent on how we choose our next action. If there's one thing Abrahamic monotheisms do, it is attach significance to the individual life. And finally, the point at which we really converge with the Dalai Lama, which is hope, that last great dimension of happiness. There is a direct contrast between the Greek concepts of ananke and moira, an inexorable fate on the one hand, and the Jewish concepts of freedom, responsibility, repentance, forgiveness on the other. Do we face a closed or open future? Those cultures that believe in inexorable fate write tragedies. They produce a Sophocles, an Aeschylus, geniuses, but they write tragedies. Those cultures that believe in choice and forgiveness that don't even understand the word tragedy. For a people that suffered more than most, you will be surprised to know that in Hebrew there is no word for tragedy. And when modern Hebrew wanted it, it had to borrow tragedia. Why? Because Judaism and doubtless Christianity likewise are the principled defeat, refutation of tragedy in the name of hope. And that, I think, is the final point of happiness. So I hope I've given you an idea now of three kinds of happiness, three strands in a very complex picture in Judaism. Happiness is struggle. Let's call that prophetic happiness. Number two, happiness is peace. Let's call that wisdom happiness. And happiness as the thing we share, let's call that covenantal happiness. And I think that is enough, at least, to begin a conversation. That was Happiness in the Jewish Perspective by Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. 
You can watch the full video by following the link in the episode description. Canopy Forum and the Interactions podcast are distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and produced by Anna Knudsen. I am your narrator, Janet Metzger. You can follow Canopy Forum on Twitter or Facebook and subscribe to Interactions on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.